Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and the UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with my promo code POD, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD. That's P-O-D. That's a Stamps.com promo code POD. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And once again, I just want to thank you so much for listening. I know I start out every single episode by telling you guys that I never thought I would be doing it for this long, and I absolutely mean it. Uh, This is a hobby for me. Um, I do have a day job. Now, the reason that I may miss a week is because I have been transitioning. I am going back to clinical work. 
Uh, I'm back to working in the substance abuse field. Um, I'm working with Aware Recovery, which is um, in-home substance abuse treatment. Um, so I had to take a little time. So while I transitioned over to my new job and my new role. So thank you guys for bearing with me. And I see that we have people joining us from new countries all over the world. Um, I always love to see when we have people coming from all over the world. We have the Netherlands. Uh, Sweden, Greece, Poland, South Africa, Russia even. Happy to have you. I hope you keep coming back. Um, and absolutely hit us, uh, hit me up on, it's at Geek Flossie on both Twitter and Instagram. If you have any ideas, um, head over to the Patreon. Um, we do have a tier where you can request specific crimes. I'm always looking for crimes in other countries. I'm happy to cover any crime in your country, especially, you know, there's always going to be crimes I'm not going to be able to hear about um, on an international level. So head over to the Patreon um, if you want to request crime that I may not uh, be able to find out about on my own. And um, once again, like I said, thank you guys so much for the love and support. I do have a YouTube channel now, Dumber Than a Sack of Hair, where we look at some more uh, funnier uh, crimes, uh, dumber things. Um, and uh, starting in November, we are going to be doing the uh, Bracket Sal Tournament to see if any of the states in the United States can uh, dethrone Florida man for being the dumbest criminals in the United States. So uh, the links will be uh, in the description so that you can head over and check out that tournament that will be starting in November. So let's get into this week's uh, this week's subject. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Hart family. For those of you who aren't aware of who they are, um, they may not be well known outside the U.S. They were a family who made national headlines when one of the children during the Black Lives Matters protests actually um, at the actually some of the protests that started before COVID um, were uh, made. Uh, headlines for hugging police officers offering free hugs um, and that was the first um, on a national level here in the United States that we knew of the Hart family. So uh, we'll start um, by going into white savior complex. What, what can I do to help? It's a question that many people ask themselves after seeing people in need especially people in need who are people of color. Now, a lot of times people ask this question after a natural disaster, a pandemic, or any type of humanitarian crisis. Many people ask themselves this question more during the pandemic. Maybe it's a question that you asked yourself oftentimes on a day-to-day -day basis, seeing the inequities that black people, indigenous people of color, or BIPOC for short, face on a regular basis but what you're doing to help that makes you feel good about yourself are you doing it more so because it makes you feel good about yourself or because you actually want to combat the systemic problems that affect BIPOC people enter white savior complexes so basically a white savior complex is when you are helping because it makes you feel good about yourself, not because you actually want to deal with the issue or help the individuals. 
While helping out your fellow humans is noble, white savior complex is something you can, that can stand in the way of addressing the real work that needs to be done. But what exactly is a white savior complex and why is it bad? Here's what you need to know. White savior complex is an ideology that is acted upon when a white person from a position of superiority attempts to help or rescue a BIPOC person or community. Whether this is done consciously or unconsciously, people with this complex have an underlying belief that they know best or that they have skills that BIPOC people don't have. And according to Savala Nolan, author of Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body, and the director of the Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at the Berkeley School of Law. They think they are somehow in a position that should enable them to have more power in terms of solving the problems than the people who are actually impacted by the actual problem. This mindset isn't anything new. In fact, white saviorism is a centuries-old concept that can be traced back to the days when many white Westerners believed they inherently had the knowledge, skills, and ingenuity to solve the problems of other people all over the world, especially people in developing countries and especially Africans. I think it's been fundamental underpinning of Western imperialism, and it's been evident in the global empire-building enterprise. Danielle Tanaya Smith, PhD, a professor in the Department of African American Studies at Syracuse University states, although its roots may be hundreds of years old, white saviorism is still alive and well around the world and within the walls of the U.S., Today, it tends to take shape of focusing on providing immediate solutions, especially during humanitarian crises, to people at the individual level, Smith explains. While these immediate solutions are important because they meet urgent needs in times of crises, the white savior approach doesn't look beyond those immediate needs. In other words, the long-term needs of individuals and communities are not being addressed. I think that these solutions don't pay much attention to how complicated the interactions are between social and economic and political factors, Smith states. And part of what the, that means is that white savior mentality encourages individual dependency rather than long-term community building or long-term community self-sufficiency. Now, I've actually experienced this. What I, I just left working um, at a... Uh, shelter, as many of you may know. Um, I actually experienced this firsthand. We had this lady who was absolutely fixated our non-English speaking families of color. She would show up, it got to the point where she would show up and try and force her way into the shelter to get to the families. Um, it got to a point where we actually had to tell her that she could not come back anymore. Um, she at one point showed up during the day when nobody was home. She wanted to be let into their room so she could take things to bring to the children while they were at school, which is obviously absolutely not. Um, we treated their individual units just like you would treat someone's home. You're not going to let some random stranger that shows up and says, hey, I need to be let into this person's apartment because their kid needs something. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I don't know that you actually know these people. I'm not, as a landlord or a maintenance man, going to let you into this person's apartment just because you said so. On the same token, we wouldn't let you into a person's unit at a shelter just because you said so. So um, it, it just got to be ridiculous and insane. And like I said, it got to a point where 
you know, she was trying to force her way into the building to get to these children. And it started with one particular family. And when the children didn't behave in the manner that she wanted them to behave, like she came in the shelter screaming at these poor children. And then she just jumped from one family to the next. She just decided she was going to help a different family. And just like the entitlement like like she was entitled to these children like she absolutely was going to have access to them no matter what she was going to help them whether they wanted the help or not and the fact that she was going to force her way into the shelter to get to the family to offer them her help was just absolutely insane and that's what we talk about when we talk about this white saviorism being detrimental there's a whole community of people in the shelter who all need help all of them are struggling. All of them could use assistance. And this woman is focused only on these non-English speaking people of color and only on helping one individual family at a time. And that's exactly what they speak to. She, They're speaking to the individualism instead of community building or helping long-term community self-sufficiency. This particular woman is focusing on individual families to the extent that she's trying to force herself on them instead of trying to help an entire community of people in need. The white savior complex can be played out in pop culture and in real life. In movies, a white person coming to town to help save a group of BIPOC people, whether they're students, athletes, or wrongly accused prisoners, is a pretty common storyline. In real life, white savior complex most recently was on display during the pandemic. COVID-19 disproportionately affected BIPOC people in the U.S. As the country saw them getting sick and dying, the response was to come up with solutions that met the needs of individual sick people. And that immediate response was needed to save lives. But someone with white savior mentality might believe that they've already provided the solution and shift their focus on the next disaster, rather than think about structural barriers in place that caused BIPOC people at put them at a disadvantage when it came to health access and outcomes during the pandemic. And without addressing these these barriers, substantial changes can't happen for the long run. Yes, I sort of liken someone who's engaging in white saviorism to a person who rushes into an emergency room wanting to help, but if they don't have training as a nurse or a doctor, they're just going to end up hurting more people than helping. But how can someone who wants to help actually wind up doing more harm than good? By only putting a band-aid on the problem. That band-aid will just come off eventually, revealing the deeper barriers that still exist. It's essentially a form of blindness, Smith says. It's not going to allow you to perceive what is in front of you accurately. And if you can't see it accurately, then you can't be of any profound use in solving the problem. The person who's trying to render aid may not mean any harm, but white saviorism perpetuates white supremacy as the system by which we organize our society. And research shows that white supremacy, whether conscious or unconscious, leads to poor health outcomes for BIPOC people. Physicians, typically tend to see the patient as an individual personal representing a specific illness or a symptom. And they don't see larger issues like living in poverty and living in places with high crime. These social factors impact people's health and well-being. And if healthcare providers want to treat people holistically for them to be healthy over a long period of time, you cannot only treat a symptom, the singular symptom that they're presenting to you. 
And that is what the white savior mentality does. It focuses on the individual and their specific symptom, rather than focus on the larger systemic structural issues that cause these individual illnesses. White people who want to help people in the communities of color first need to take a back seat, Smith advises. Follow the lead of the people of color that are in the space that you're entering. You need to be willing to not be at the center of the work or the center of the solution and to follow the advice, expertise, and requests of the people who are closest to the pain and the problem. It's also important that the work white people do addresses structural societal issues. Instead of narrowing the focus to the individual level, think broadly and consider what systems are in place that might be influencing their health and well-being. If you see other people or an organization engaging in white saviorism, please call them out. But then call them back in. If you have an understanding of what white saviorism is, then you're, and you're in a position to see it and to think about it. And hopefully, if you're working to avoid it, you're also in a position to articulate the harm of it and how it can be avoided and how much more impactful whatever the work the person or organization trying to do will be if white saviorism isn't at play. Basically, what that means is you can help without harming by trying to make long lasting solutions instead of individualized solutions for one person at a time. We wanna fix the system so that more than just one person gets help. Jennifer Jean Hart, born June 4th, 1971. And since 1998, stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and the UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send, and you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with my promo code POD, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD. That's P-O-D. That's a stamps.com promo code POD. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Sarah Margaret Hart, born April 8, 1979, were both from South Dakota. Jennifer originated from Huron, Sarah from Big Stone City. Although some claim Ortonville, Minnesota, which is adjacent to Big Stone, was actually Sarah's hometown. Both women were the eldest children of their families. Jennifer had two siblings, and Sarah had three. According to her father, Jennifer was not initially raised as Lutheran, but eventually was baptized as one. 
Jennifer attended Huron High School. Sarah attended the high school in Minnesota. Now, the two women attended and began their relationship at Northern State University. Sarah had initially attended the University of Minnesota for a semester before she transferred in, while Jennifer started at Augustina University before she transferred in as well. Both women majored in elementary education, with Sarah focusing on special education. After Sarah graduated in 2002, Jennifer left the university without graduating. In 2005, Sarah graduated in, 2000, um, in 2005, Sarah asked a local court to have her last name altered to match her partners. The couple went to Connecticut to be married in 2009. At the time, same-sex marriage was not, yet, was not yet legal. On Facebook, Jennifer stated that the women were initially closeted and faced ostracism once they publicly outed themselves, prompting the couple to move. They moved to Alexandria, Minnesota in 2004 and were both worked at Herberger's store. Jennifer worked miscellaneous jobs until she became a stay-at-home mom in 2006, while Sarah became a manager at Herberger's, which is a kind of like, I want to say, a department store. After a period of living in Westland, Oregon, the Hearts moved to an unincorporated area near Woodlawn, Washington. Sarah became a manager at Kohl's, which once again is a kind of department store, and Hazel Dell. The couple were living near Woodlawn at the time of the tragedy. The Hearts received funds from the state of Texas to cover their adoptions of their six children, which accounted for almost 50% of their income. Jesus. Members of Jennifer's and Sarah's families stated the two women distanced themselves from them, although both families were accepting of their sexual orientation. Jennifer estranged herself from her father after 2001. State government reports stated that the couple cut off contact with their relatives because of criticism about their parenting. Prior to adopting their six children, the Hearts were foster parents to a 15-year-old girl. A week before their first three children were due to arrive, the Hearts dropped the girl off at the local kindergarten near the appointment with her therapist. The therapist then informed her that the Hearts would not be coming back for her. Oh my God, that's awful. Abigail, born 2003, Hannah Jean, born 2002, and Marquise, born 1998, were adopted by the Hearts from Colorado County, Texas. The placement came on March 4, 2006 and they were adopted that September. In June 2008, they adopted three additional children, Sierra Maha and Devante Jordan, and Jeremiah Hart, who was born in 2004, from Houston, after their biological mother, Sherry Davis, lost custody. The Davis children were given to their paternal aunt, Priscilla Celestine, under the condition they have no contact with their biological mother. However, after she was required to work an additional shift, Celestine allowed their mother to babysit the children, which a caseworker found out about. As a result, the children were moved from Celestine's care, and a court prevented Celestine from obtaining permanent custody. The Davis children were put into foster care. Their older brother, Dante, however, was not adopted by the Hearts due to behavioral issues. So, usually they try and do a kinship placement first in these situations. A kinship placement is where a family member is where they're placed with. Um, obviously, 
you're not supposed to have the relative they're removed from living with you, staying with you, visits should, I mean, if it's written in there that they're supposed to be supervised, the visits should always be supervised. Um, and yeah, it was probably not the greatest idea to have their mother be, you know, babysitting. But it seems a little bit drastic to remove them because mom babysat. Um, so yeah, this seems like a huge leap. It's not like anything happened. It's just that mom babysat. Um, Devon, and like I had said before, Devante came to national spotlight when he was photographed crying as he embraced, embraced a police officer during a 2014 protest in Oregon, resulting from Ferguson unarrest. The image became known as the hug felt around the world. Jennifer was very active on social media and used Facebook to project an image of a loving, happy family while also sharing her thoughts on race, politics, and trips the family went on. This helped mask a lot of the problems within the family. One allegation of child abuse from 2013 touched upon Jennifer's use of Facebook, saying that the kids pose and are made to look like a big, happy family, but after the photos, they go back to being lifeless. For Tammy Shurick, the pain is very, very, very fresh. She is the biological mother of Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail. The story of how Tammy lost her children is filled with near misses and problems that compound upon each other. She said she was homeless on and off since she was 17. She ran away from home to meet a much older boyfriend. She took a Greyhound bus from Corpus Christi, where she was living with her grandparents at the time, to meet him in Houston, but he never showed up. Her grandfather told her, you make your bed, you lie in it, and refused to let her come back. This is going to sound insane, but this is actually pretty common. Um, there, it, It's in... The amount of people who go to meet people from the internet who have kids and then the people either don't show up or they decide that you and your kids are not what I wanted and throw them on the street and the people end up with child services cases, which I'm sorry, but as you should, you made the bad judgment call to move, you know, to God knows where with a person that you've never met with your children, but it's, it's actually pretty common that they go to meet to stay and live with people they meet on the internet and it turns it goes horribly sideways and they end up with child services cases that was my lesson that's how i became homeless she recalls i lived inside the greyhound bus station for like a month after being taken from her mother's custody as a toddler she spent most of her childhood living with her father's parents she had a difficult relationship with her father who remarried and had two more children when she was 13, she threatened suicide. She was sent to the state hospital the first of three stays for a total of nearly eight months, resulting from suicidality, according to her own account. She has since been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, major depression, and is receiving disability benefits. She spent much of her adult life bouncing around from Corpus Christi, where her dad and stepmother lived, to Columbus, Texas, where her grandparents settled, to Houston, where she was intermittently homeless. She says she never developed a drug habit like many other people on the street, and she always felt accepted. The streets have been one of those places where I always kind of turn to because people out there don't look down on you. She said it almost felt like a family. If you think of it like that, you don't get judged. Everyone has a story. She was 18 when she had Marquise and left him for long stretches with her grandparents, but she was older and calmer when she had Hannah 
three and a half years later. She's pregnant with Abigail and living with Marquise and Hannah in Corpus Christi for a series of events that led to her entanglement with Child Protective Services. At a birthday party in July 2003, Hannah then one and a half got covered with ant bites, one of which got infected with a hard-to-treat staph. They had to remove a chunk the size of a quarter of flesh around her leg and give her IV antibiotics. A doctor informed CPS, which opened a case for medical neglect. Look, I have actually had clients who have had doctors call Child Protective Services on them for the most ridiculous and insane things. I know someone who missed a appointment in a snowstorm because they had no transportation and a doctor called CPS on them. So doctors calling CPS on parents for things that are completely out of their control is not unheard of. Your child getting a staph infection from a, you know, Staph is usually because of unsanitary conditions, you know, and an infection from an ant bite that leads to staph, that's a hit or miss thing. You don't necessarily know how she's living and assuming the child got staph because mom is living dirty and not taking care of her kids. I kind of feel like it's a leap, but the doctor may have felt like he was erring on the side of caution and that's why he called Child Protective Services. You never know what's in a person's mind when they do stuff like that but it's like I said I've had several clients who've had doctors call child protective services on them for the most ridiculous of things um so when the agency got involved with her family she was scared and briefly decided to place Abigail who was not born for adoption I remember having an ultrasound and not even wanting to look at the screen once they settled down in Columbus with her grandparents she changed her mind Things calmed down so much and I could see a light at the end of the tunnel and I thought, yeah, I can do this. Abigail was born just after Christmas, less than two months later. Sherlock uh, said she had taken Hannah to the doctor on February 9th and the doctor had changed Hannah's asthma medication and sent them home. But according to a police report filed the next month, she, uh, Sherlock did not show for a planned doctor's appointment the next day. This is actually pretty common um, for follow-ups. Uh, for you to not show up to a follow-up for a doctor to call child services if you do not show up for a scheduled follow-up if they think that it's a pretty serious condition and you do not show up for a follow-up it is not uncommon for doctors to uh, file with child services if you do not show up for a planned follow-up for a serious condition um, and then she waited too long to take Hannah to a hospital as she was instructed by the doctor over the phone she maintains that she called an ambulance but had no one to take care of her other two children, so she was forced to wait for a ride to take her to the hospital. That ride ended up being a child services worker named Sharon Kirby, who she thinks might have been summoned by an ambulance dispatcher. Sharon was standing there in my living room. She reassured me she wasn't taking my kids and that she was just there to help in other ways. At the hospital, Sherk remembers a nurse coming in to talk to the child services worker. When the worker came back in the room, she told her that CPS was taking her kids. So she already had the paperwork. Like, yeah, like she she showed up specifically to take her kids and she should have just told her the truth, like like prolonging it like. She probably didn't want her to cause a scene, but you, if you came with the paperwork in hand to remove the children, there is no point in lying to her. 
Caribou was contacted for the story, but she declined to be interviewed, citing her fear of being sued since she's no longer working for Child Protective Services. She did say, I did everything I could for those kids and I love them. After that day, she would never have custody of her children again. She voluntarily signed away her rights because she expected her children to be placed with a foster family that wanted to adopt them in Missouri City, which is a suburb of Houston. But she later found out that the adoption fell through and the kids ended up adopted out of state. And that would be the last that she would hear of them until October 2018, 12 years after they were adopted by a Minnesota couple by the name of Jennifer and Sarah. She got a phone call from her estranged stepmother and learned that her children were dead. Colorado County had charged her over that incident with child endangerment. The indictment says that she did intentionally, knowingly, recklessly, or in criminal negligence engage in conduct by omission that placed Hannah, a child younger than 15 years of age, in imminent danger of death, bodily injury, or physical or mental impairment by failing to seek medical. She called an ambulance. What else was she? See, this is one of those no-win situations for people with no money and without the means to secure childcare. So basically, if she'd stay at home and take care of her children, she would have going to get charged with neglect for not taking her child to the doctor. If she had left her children at home and gotten into the ambulance, she would have been charged with neglect because there would have been nobody taking care of her children. By waiting for a ride to take her and all three of her children, she got charged for neglect because she didn't get to the hospital fast enough because she didn't have a car to drive her there because she didn't have anybody reliable to drive her and her three children there. There was a, This was a no-win situation. There was never going to be a time in which she was not going to get charged. And a lot of people say, well, she could have gotten there faster. She could have called really like the ambulance doesn't allow you to take all three the other two children with you so yeah she could have called an ambulance but what was she going to do with her other two children she was always going to be labeled as doing something that was endangering the welfare of one child so if she responded in a timely manner for Hannah, she was going to get hit with endangerment for the other two kids because she left them by herself. It was always going to be a situation where she was set up for failure because she was too poor to pay for a uh, babysitter because she didn't have a car to drive all of them there because she didn't have the means to get them all there in a timely manner. This was a catch-22. She was set up for failure. Um, it then goes on to say that um, in 2008, while the family was um, living um, out of this, though, she did receive six months. So she served six months for criminal neglect, all because they felt that she did not get her daughter to a hospital within a timely manner. Six months for criminal neglect, even though, remember, she called an ambulance. She called an ambulance. But because she didn't get her there as fast as they felt that she needed to, she did six months. In 2008, while the family was living in Minnesota, a teacher observed bruises on Hannah's left arm and was told that she'd been hit by Jennifer with a belt. Within months, all six children had been pulled out of public school for a year. This is a huge, huge, huge red flag. And not just when you're dealing with children. Whenever you deal with the family and something happens and someone tells someone, and the next thing you know, they cut off all contact with anybody on the outside. That is a massive red flag for any type of abuse. In 2010, Abigail said she had owies on her back and stomach, stating that she felt threatened by the hearts. 
The hearts had beaten her and held her head in cold water over a penny they assumed she stole. It's a penny. She probably found it on the ground. One cent. She got beaten over a cent. <sighs> when authorities became involved, all children claimed they had been spanked consistently and regularly deprived of food. Sarah took responsibility for the abuse and pled guilty to assault. Can we talk about the fact that she pled guilty to assault for beating a child over a penny, but nobody removed these children? This other woman failed to take her children, took, this other woman lost her children for failing to take them to take one child. She lost all three of her children for failing to take, lost all three of her children for failing to take one child to a hospital in a timely manner. This woman beat this child and held her head underwater over one cent and all five of their children are staying in their custody. Do you see the problem here and the discrepancy in the level of care and how over-involved they got in Texas as to how uninvolved and unconcerned they are for these children? This is just absolutely beyond unacceptable. This is what they talk about when they talk about children falling through the cracks. They absolutely got over-involved with these children, removed them from mother's care because she didn't get one child to the hospital as fast as they wanted them to, and then put her in jail for six months. This woman pled guilty, got no jail time. None of the children were taken from her, uh, got no jail time. She got community service for a year, community service. Yeah, that's messed up. That's beyond messed up. One year later, Hannah reportedly told a school nurse she hadn't eaten in a day. Sarah claimed that she was playing the food card and recommended she needs to be given water. Soon afterwards, all six children were taken out of public school and homeschooled from then on. Huge, huge red flag. Whenever the children tell anybody anything is wrong, finally they've had enough. We're going to homeschool them so we don't have to answer to anybody. That's insane. Like the food card. She's playing the food card. She's playing the food card. That's a new one. She's playing the food card. In 2013, Oregon authorities were notified of the abuse allegations in Minnesota. Their investigation included separate interviews of everyone in the family, as well as interviews of people who knew the family. Two family friends stated that the children were forced to raise their hands before speaking, could not wish each other happy birthday, and could not laugh during dinner. There were other reports that the children were poorly fed and looked incredibly small for their ages. One family friend reported that Jennifer had ordered pizza for the children, but each was only allowed to have half of a slice. What? When Jennifer discovered that the pizza was gone, she punished the children by not feeding them breakfast and forcing them to lie on their bed for five hours. What? I want to be like, that's not a punishment, but then they're not in their beds, they're on their beds. So, yeah, I can't lie on my bed for five hours. Friends also stated that the children acted scared to death of Jen and likened them to train robots. However, the interviews of the children themselves revealed no new incidents of abuse, nor did they mention anything that happened in Minnesota. 
When Jennifer herself was interviewed, she claimed that any family problems were the results of others not being tolerant of two lesbians who have African-American children. Of course. In the end, the investigation could not conclude whether the Hearts were guilty of anything or if there was a safety threat. The Hearts moved to Woodlawn, Washington in 2017. In August of that year, that's actually a huge red flag. If foster parents are constantly moving and jumping around, that's a massive, massive, massive red flag. The Hearts moved um, in 2017. In August of that year, Hannah jumped out of her second story window at around 1.30 a.m. and approached the residence of a next door neighbor, the DeKalb. Hannah repeatedly pleaded, please don't make me go back. They're racist and they abuse us. Soon afterwards, the Hearts found Hannah and took her back. The following day, Jennifer attempted to explain the incident by claiming that Hannah was lying and that the children occasionally act out because they're drug babies and Hannah's biological mother was bipolar. Look, unless she's bipolar too, that doesn't explain a damn thing. And someone being born addicted to drugs when, you know, what is this, 12, 13, 14 years later is not going to make them act out and call you a racist. Nice try though. After this incident, the DeKalb family came into contact with Devante, who constantly begged them for food and asked them not to tell Jennifer about it. In later conversations with Devante, he told them that his adoptive mothers withheld food as punishment and that children were sometimes abused. This combined with the earlier incident with Hannah made the DeKalb's report the hearts to both the police and the Washington State Department of Social Health and Services which is like the Department of Children, uh, Child and Safety. Caseworkers from the Department of Social and Health Services tried to reach the hearts twice, March 23rd, three days before the incident, and once on the day of the incident. According to an incident report following the event, it was reported that Sarah told a co-worker that she wished someone told her it was okay to not have a big family. Then she and Jennifer would not have adopted the kid. Jesus. Oh, my God. The coroner's inquest gave more insight to what led Jennifer and Sarah to end the lives of all eight hearts. I mean, I have read a lot of different stuff, but but I feel like every time I get, <laughs> I just, I hear worse and worse stuff. It's like these women, worse and worse things come out of their mouth. I've watched the documentary. Like, I, I it's not like the, I'm reading some of this stuff for the first time. It's just like I feel like every time I go in to read this stuff, it gets worse and worse. I feel like I can't get shocked anymore, and then I get shocked more. The coroner's inquest gave more insight into what led Jennifer and Sarah to end the lives of all of their children. When authorities entered the Hart's home, it seemed neat, orderly, and newly remodeled, said investigator Jake Slates from the California Highway Patrol. But while Jennifer and Sarah's rooms were decorated, the children's rooms were bare. Investigators noted their luggage was left behind and the family did not take toothbrushes before leaving for two days. In my opinion, Sarah and Jennifer succumbed to a lot of pressure, said Lieutenant Shannon Barty of Mendocino County. They got to the point where they made a conscious decision to end their lives and take their children with them. As Jennifer drove down the U.S. 101 highway, she had five beers in her systems, enough to make it difficult for her to function, according to the Slates. Witnesses told the police that Jennifer rarely ever drank. The theory is that she drank to build up her courage. 
My feeling is based on talking to witnesses. They felt if they couldn't have the kids, no one was going to have them. Days before the family died in the crash, Child Protective Services in Washington requested a welfare check on the family, but no one answered the door on March 26. The family was already gone. According to a case report, the children also complained of racist behavior. Witnesses told the California Highway Patrol the children were extremely disciplined, almost to the point of being robotic. They were made to walk single file to the bedrooms and were being told when to go to the bathroom and when not to go to the bathroom. On March 23rd, DeKalb called CPS to check on the family. The next day is when they packed up their SUV and began their drive to Washington. Their drive from Washington to California. On March 26, 2018, Jennifer Hart drove all drove her entire family, including her wife, off a 100-foot cliff on California State Road 1 in Mendocino County, California, near Westport. The bodies of all five of the children, Hannah, Marcus, Jeremiah, Abigail, and Sierra, were found in or nearby the vehicle, which landed upside down on a beach below the cliff. The body of Devante was never found. A Superior Court judge ruled that Devante was in the vehicle at the time of the crash and a death certificate was signed on April 3, 2019. Authorities determined that the Yukon had been intentionally driven off the edge of the cliff. The car had a black box that recorded parameters of the drive and fall. A 14-member coroner's jury unanimously ruled the case a murder-suicide. The inquest was called to determine the cause of death but not any responsibility in civil or criminal fields. The California Highway Patrol stated that criminal prosecution was not possible due to the deaths of any responsible parties. Toxicology reports showed that Jennifer's blood alcohol content was way over the legal limit at the time of the crash, and that both Sarah and two of her children had Benadryl. Sarah had made Google searches before the crash, inquiring about Benadryl, no-kill shelters, and the natures of drownings. The Mendocino County Sheriff's Department officially closed the case and released the declassified records in 2019. That is the horrible case of the Hart family. Um, I do believe probably that Sarah and Jennifer wanted to do well by adopting all these kids. I think that they probably just didn't have the means. I think that They didn't know what they were doing, and it really just sounds like it wasn't about the kids. It never was about the kids. It was about themselves. They had this great social media presence where they look like this wonderful, loving family when they weren't. They they were putting on a show, and the kids were an ends to a means, which is unfortunate for these poor kids. Um, Red flags were everywhere for this family, and I think they caught them a lot more slack Um, Then obviously they caught the children's parents. Um, One parent babysat (laughs) while, you know, they were in custody of a loved one and they took them from that loved one. You know, another parent didn't get them to the emergency room in a timely manner. You know, these were causes for loss of custody while these two women actively beat these children and starved them. And they did not remove them from their care. So it begs the question, are they harsher on parents of color than they are on white parents? 
it's really what is at the center of this whole situation so uh join us next time when we look at the case of a brazilian football player who murdered his girlfriend in the absolutely most heinous of ways and appears to have gotten away with it because football so um in the meantime i hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things